You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Amen. Why don't you just take a minute in your seats right now, just in the quietness of your hearts, just continue worshiping and telling God how great and glorious He is. Let's take a moment to be silent and worship in your hearts. God, your word says that your glory reigns throughout the whole earth. God, we see it in creation as we step outside our front door and we look and see the majesty of the skies and the beautiful flowers and grass and the rivers and streams and mountains. God, we see your glory in all of creation. God, we see your glory every time we look at another person made in your image. We see the the, the image of our God and the glory of our God. God, we see your glory in other believers as we see you redeeming us and changing us into your image. We see your glory transforming our lives. We see your glory, God, through your word. Every time we open up your word and we see how, how, how majestic you are and how magnificent you are, God, we stand back in awe. We can never comprehend the fullness of your complete glory, God. And we see your glory so evidently plain in your son, Jesus. What a beautiful being, Lord coming from heaven to earth to live and die and and offer us salvation and forgiveness that we might be reconciled to our God. What a picture of the glory of the living God. Father, I pray you'd help us as your people never get tired or bored or distracted from the glory of who you are. Renew that in us again today, God, as we worship. God, as we meet together today and open up your word, we just simply want to see your glory through your word. We want to know your plans for us. We want to know your purposes for us. We want to see how you move and choose to move among your people. Help us to not just be here, God, and get some intellectual knowledge this morning, but help us be here, Lord, that we might all be revived in our souls and renewed in our hearts to be on your page for our lives and for our church. God, speak to us like only you can. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 1 is where we'll be in our Bibles. You can feel free to uh, stick your hand up. If you don't have a Bible, one of our ushers will be more than happy to give you a copy of God's Word to follow along with us. Uh, Acts chapter 1 is where, you're gonna, where we're going to be. The year-long theme, Unstoppable Church, first couple of chapters of Acts, is God Empowered. And as you turn there, I just want to um, remind you of a few announcements that we have. That I want to emphasize a few announcements. That we've, you, one you've already heard, one that's, that you haven't yet. But uh, who remembers what I preached on last week? You remember what I preached on last week? Yep. A couple of you? Good. This is why I'm having this announcement here. Preached on the purpose of us as God's people being witnesses for him and the world around us. And hopefully you... It's easy just to hear a sermon and go home and forget about all, all that it was about. I've done that, been there. So I'm assuming you guys are sometimes there. And so we, we can't miss that one, though, right? We can't miss the purpose of what God has for us as people and as his church. And so hopefully all week long you were thinking about how I can be a witness for Christ in the world around me. Uh, we want to help you have an opportunity for witness. And so what Jeremy has done as our director of evangelism, he's organized a, an outreach event with our GO teams to go and take the gospel to the Grape and Wine Festival this coming weekend. 
And so uh, we encourage you to put that on your calendar and be there from 10 a.m. till 12. Uh, we're going to give away water bottles, have gospel tracts, have a little message of the gospel and the water bottles we give out. We're going to share Christ. And so we're just trying to help you get on your path to being a good witness for Christ. And so I know it's intimidating. You're like, oh, I've never done that before. Perfect. Come with other people and do it together. And so we're expecting great things. 10 to 12 Saturday, please uh, put that down. Also in two weeks, uh, anniversary service, uh, which is exciting for us. Uh, fifth anniversary, five years has flown by, and we're excited to come together and celebrate that. It's going to be a really, really special morning with a bunch of different elements to it, so you just don't want to miss that service. Uh, but part of that is uh, we have, if you walked in, you noticed on your left, it'll be on your right going out, we have a, a cork board there with uh, 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15. Uh, as part of our anniversary service, we'd love for you just to share uh, a God at work story in your life of what God has done through the ministry at Harvest over the last five years. Not so we can say anything about us, that we can give God praise and glory and honor for all that he's done. So on your way out today, and then and you're coming in next week and going out next week, please just take two minutes just to write down your one sentence, like, man, God did this in my life or in my family. We know there's so many of those stories out there, and just like stick it up under the appropriate year, and we're going to use that in the anniversary service. So please, it's, imp it's important for us as a church to celebrate in a healthy way the things God has done. You with me? All right. Acts chapter 1, this is uh, the word of the Lord that we're going to keep going through, and we're just going to go verse by verse through this book, and we come to a passage that, quite honestly, uh, many of us would just skip over as in, like, hey, let's get to a good passage, and yet we don't skip any passage in the word of God because every single one of them is important to our lives. God has given us his word on purpose for our lives today, Amen. And so we're going to go through this verse by verse. And as we get into Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12, I want to ask you this question before you even read the text. Does God care about church leadership? Does leadership really matter in the church today? Or are we living in a new day where only Jesus matters now? It's a super important question to ask ourselves because I hear so often, I've heard so often after 20 years almost of, of in ministry, I've heard so many understandings and ideas of what church leadership is and should be and ought to be, and honestly, very few of them are biblical. I've heard it all. I've heard from one end of the spectrum that church leadership is a man-made power play so these hung power-hungry guys can have control. I've heard that often. It's simply not true. I've heard often that church leadership is kind of good, it's pretty good, I guess, but only if it's going where I think it should go, and as soon as it doesn't, like, I'm out, and I'll follow somebody who's really going to lead me in the way that I think I should be led, making leadership sort of meaningless. It's not true. I've heard the far end of the spectrum of like, well, church leadership is the be-all and the end-all of the church. We need church leaders to do the work of the ministry. And yes, it's partially true, but it's not just the leader's job to do the work, it's our job to equip you to do the work. Right? So I've heard this complete, full spectrum of what church leadership is today. And it begs the question, like, so in today's culture, church leadership, is it important? Is it important? Clearly in Scripture, God has mandated and ordained church leaders and designed church leaders to help his people move towards his son and his mission. And we see that so clearly in Acts chapter 1. Starting at verse 12, the text takes a different spin than we'd think. Think about where we've just been. We were just with the disciples, right? And they were on the, uh, the, the mountain with Jesus, and he gets 
carried up into the clouds, and they're like, wow, that was awesome. Jesus gave us this sweet promise of the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure within they're like, oh, I can't wait, can't wait. And then he gives them a purpose for the church to be my witnesses. And so you think from there, where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? Jesus goes, God goes into establishing leadership within the church before anything else happens next. He establishes his leadership priority before the empowerment of the Holy Spirit comes. God raises up and appoints men to lead, inspire, care for, organize, and take responsibility for helping the people of God live out the calling of God here on earth. So let me read this for you, and you'll understand where we're going. Matthias chosen to replace Judas. God's priority for leadership right here. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and even Jesus' brothers. In those days, Peter, who was the leader among the disciples, stood up among the brothers, a company of about 120 people. It's just a little group of believers there that God was going to do amazing things through. And he said to them, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Didn't he mention his name? Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Thank you, Peter. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Adalk, I, I, I can never do this, Akaldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, prophesied about this, may his camp become desolate and that there be no one to dwell in it. And it also said, let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, And Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Simply put, we see God's prayer on leadership in the church. This is the leadership team of the first church of Christ. Really, the pastor is simply about this, God fulfilling the leadership void by appointing a new leader, but in the process of appointing this new leader, we actually learn some important truths that we must get a hold of as a church. Truths that mark, that are the mark of a God-empowered leadership that he will use to build his church. So as the disciples lived and breathed, so we ought to as a church want to live and breathe, Amen. 
If we saw God do so much with his disciples who led the church, why would we not want God to do that in our church, to learn from them and grow from them, that God would do the same thing here in this day and age? And so we're going to just look at three three, uh, qualities of leaders that God empowers from this text as I explain it to you. The first one is this. Leaders that God empowers are united in earnestly seeking God. Are united in urgency seeking God. So right after the Mount of Olivet thing happened, the disciples travel a Sabbath day's journey to the upper room. What's a Sabbath day's journey? Does that mean that they travel from Sabbath to Sabbath? Actually, the Sabbath day's journey is only one kilometer. Remember the Jews put all these rules and regulations around how far you could go on a Sunday and what you could do to try and these legalistic rules. And so they determined that anything more than a kilometer was work. And so the Disciples took full advantage of their kilometer. I don't know if they stepped it out or what, but they traveled the Sabbath day's journey back to the upper room. Very maybe the room that actually Jesus had the, had the Passover meal with them and the, the communion, but it was a special place for them. And, and so interesting that all this just happened. You can imagine their minds are spinning, right? They're probably, they're probably trying to just walk at a normal speed because they're so excited. They just can't believe that the promise and the purpose of what are we going to do next? And yeah, they get to the upper room and it sounds simple, but it's pretty profound what they do next. What did they do according to the text? When they got to the upper room, they gathered all the disciples together and even some of the followers. And what did they do first? They, they prayed. It's the mark of a God-empowered leadership to be a people who are devoted to prayer. Put ourselves in that situation. You get this mission from God and, and he promises us this great power to do it. You know what you know, I'd probably be doing? We wouldn't be praying right away. When you, when you get good news, you generally pray right away. Sometimes we do, but generally what do we do? We, we try and get after it. We want to go somewhere. We want to do something with it. Our tendency would probably be to, to get together and we start like planning, right? Like, let's get together, guys. Let's start planning our philosophy of ministry and, and, and what, what approach are we going to take? Our, our tendency would probably be to like, let's get, get some latest books on leadership and let's, let's peruse the latest, coolest strategy of, of, of how we can make this church happen. Let's, let's start promoting the, the church that God's going to build here in Israel and in Jerusalem and around the world. And what's our, great, what's our marketing scheme going to be? They didn't even start proclaiming the gospel. He said, you're going to proclaim the gospel. But what they did first is they went together and they prayed. Instead of raising up and rallying the troops, they got low to seek the Lord and wait for his leading. And notice in this that they didn't have to like do anything special to get everyone in. All the disciples were already on that page. They already knew how desperately and urgently they needed God. If God was truly doing what he said he was going to do, oh my goodness, do we need God? And then it lists all the disciples here. Just in case you didn't know who they were, it's right there in front of you. I won't read them again. You guys can read. Same, it's the same, uh, the same list, really, that's in Luke. The same list that's in uh, Luke. Amazing that, apart from the Gospels in this list here, we never see in the rest of the New Testament the disciples all listed together. We see of Peter, James, and John, but these are all not listed together. They go their own ways, and they, they're fulfilling the mission of God. It's amazing, too, when you study the history of who these guys are. They are men who are coming from all different walks of life. They're coming from different backgrounds, different regions, different ways of thinking, different customs, and yet they all come together with one purpose, and the purpose is to pray and to seek the face of the God and to lead the people to the exact same place. It's also cool in this, you don't want to skip over this, that Jesus' mother Mary was there, and his brothers were there too. 
Who cares? Well, John tells us, the Gospel of John says, like probably eight months before this, the brothers weren't even saying, they didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet after the resurrection, after he appeared to all these people, all of a sudden people are like, yes, it's true. My goodness, this is awesome. We got to like do something about this. And they get together to devote themselves to prayer. Verse 14, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. One accord doesn't mean they all piled in a Honda and went to another training conference on church leadership. One accord means that they were all on the same page, that they were together, one mind and one heart, to seek the face of the Lord. When it says they're devoted to prayer, I don't know fully if we understand what that means in today's context, but to, devoted simply means that they were, they were persistent at it. They occupied themselves diligently with something that they saw as of utmost value and importance. Devotion's a word we throw around a little bit, but really to be devoted to something, if you're devoted to your job or your school or your hobby, you're, you're, you're totally driven with intensity for it. You love it and you can't not do it. If you're a devoted family man or woman or child, it means that your family comes first. It's a priority. This is what devotion means. If you're a devoted friend, you're consistent and persistent. And so what was the leadership of the church leading the church to be about in the book of Acts before God did all these amazing things to take the gospel to the world? They were calling each other to be devoted to prayer. This is a theme you're going to hear often in Acts, and so I'm not going to hit it all today, but throughout all of Acts, it comes back to to God's people praying, God's people praying, God's people urgently seeking the Lord. A church that God empowers is a people who are on their faces before God. A church that God empowers is a leadership in a church that have sore knees and hoarse voices from calling out to God. What would cause the disciples to go and pray? I believe it's simply this. The disciples knew that apart from God, they had nothing at all. They didn't want to rally around a cool vision or a fun program or the latest idea. They wanted to rally around the fullness of God in their lives. They longed to pray. They loved to pray. They led in prayer. They were desperate and urgent for God to move and God to do in them and through them what only God could. How many of you guys like waiting? Didn't think so. My only hands only up as a demonstration. I hate it. What do we do when we're waiting for God? Right here. They're waiting for the promise of God. They prayed and sought the Lord. Actually, in the Old Testament, waiting is a sign of godliness. It's a sign of dependence, a sign of expectation, and it's a sign of desire for not my will. Not my will is a sign of desire for God's will. This is the most important aspect of the disciples' leadership. We see it right here in Acts chapter 1. They were a man who prayed. They were leadership who were committed like Moses. Remember Moses in Exodus 33? Remember Moses, what was he like? He was, remember he came down from the mountain and, and he was all glowing and the people had turned to the golden calf and he went nuts like, what are you guys doing? And God was so angry and annoyed with the people that he said, well, you know what? I can't break my promise. You can go to the promised land, but I'm not gonna go with you. What did Moses do? Moses was like, this is a catastrophe, right? He, he, if you don't go with us, God, we, we don't wanna go anywhere. What's gonna distinguish us from the rest of the people on the earth but your holy presence? We see it in Old Testament. We see the disciples doing the same thing here. They're like, okay, God, this is great, but man, you gotta go with us. You gotta you got do it, God. We can't do it. You have to do it. 
It's a men who realized that their only rock and their only hope in life and ministry was God. Was a, a, a men, men that were probably praying something like Psalm 62, verses one and two. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For from him comes my salvation and my, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. It wasn't just a like, woohoo, let's go after this, this witness thing. It was like a scary thing, right? It's like, oh my goodness, like, I'm gonna go in the world that hates and opposes God like I need God. And so they're praying, God, come and be, be your, have your presence with us. It was a man who longed for simply the face of God more than anything else. Psalm 63, one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul longs for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We've been taught a lot of things in the North American church about what godly leadership is and what leadership in the church is. Now, how often have you heard a message on the main, main ingredient of an effective, powerful leadership for the Lord is a people who aren't like up on a pedestal, but they're actually down low before God, calling the people to be on the same place. This is what it means to be a God-empowered leadership in a God-empowered church. Why is that? Because prayer is where the power and the presence of God is. Prayer to the church leaders in the church in the early church, prayer was the native tongue. Prayer was the first instinct, the second nature. This is a blueprint for what our leadership ought to be about and what we ought to be about as a church, rallying around our leaders on their faces praying. So often you hear me exhorting and encouraging you. Well, today I get to exhort and encourage our elders, myself, and I'm preaching to me today. It's a leadership passage preaching to me today. I read this and I'm like, man, is this describing us? Is this describing our leadership? Is, are, we, are we really devoted to prayer together with, with our elders, with our church? Well, I think we're pretty good at it for the most part. Like we, we spend a good hour before our elders meetings, every elders meeting, we spend a good hour praying. We pray throughout the week, but you know, I read this and I'm like, man, there's a long way to go. This is an exhortation for me. It's an exhortation for our elders. Ed, this is for you. We've got to step it up in prayer. If we're going to be like the early church and see the power of God, we've got to step it up and pray. Not, not talking about praying, but actually like on our faces praying. It's nice to have the second pillar at the back of the church, but we've got to live the second pillar. What's our second pillar? We believe firmly in the power of prayer. Why? Because prayer is the fuel that fills our spiritual tanks. Prayer is the fuel that fills our spiritual tanks along with the word of God. No prayer, and this, this car is going nowhere. And if any of you guys ever fill up your car once a year, I know that you're good walkers or bikers because that car is not going anywhere. This is a call for the leaders of the church and the church to be about prayer often and eagerly. What about it? Why so straight? Why so urgent? Because prayer, brothers and sisters, is how we see God. Prayer is how we hear from God. Prayer is how we experience God. It's through prayer that the kingdom of heaven grows here on earth. This is why we call our people together and pray once a month. Doesn't sound like much, but once a month, we call our people together and pray. We cancel all of our small groups. We say, put aside everything on your agenda. We need to be, we want to be like Acts, don't we? We want to see God move in our midst like he did in Acts. Well, then we got to be a church that prays. 
We need to be committed to prayer together. It's one thing to pray on your own, but together as a body, this is where the power and the presence of God is. You know, the one thing that, that really bothers me and disturbs my soul, there's so many good things happening in our church. We have so many people that are being changed and coming to know Jesus, being transformed. But you know, the one thing that, that truly burdens my soul as I think about our church is simply this. When we first started our church, we were like this church in Acts. Every single member of our core group was at every single prayer meeting. We didn't have to entice them. We didn't have to challenge them. We didn't have to exhort them. We were just like, hey, we're having prayer. Awesome, let's be there. Out of 70, 80 people, guess how many people we had at prayer meeting? Seven or 80 people. So you think now with seven or 80 people, now five years later, about 650, we should have like 650 people at prayer meeting, right? As God moves in his church. Guess how many people we have a prayer meeting today? Every month this, this past year? 80, 90, 100 people? You have the same concern on your face that I have in my heart. You're getting it, Right? Being the Acts Church isn't about the leaders being prayer warriors. Starts there. But it's about our people rallying around the leaders and getting on our faces and urgently calling out to God. Without prayer, without seeking the presence of God, we are simply just a social club coming and doing our thing. This is why we give opportunities and tell you about prayer meetings in Oakville. We're not trying to entertain you for a couple hours in Oakville with a big show. We urgently need to pray. And we're calling you to come with us and pray with other churches, the body of Christ. It's where the power and the presence of God is. It's the mark of a God-empowered church, a leadership and a church that prays. It's gonna come almost every second week in Acts. As you read the book, you'll see it, so I'll leave it there. But I just encourage and exhort us to take God at his word and, and jump in on with one accord, devoting ourselves to prayer. We miss that. We miss it all. Second leadership principle of a God-empowered leadership we see in this passage is simply this. God-empowered leaders are committed to leading in truth. God-empowered leaders are committed to leading in truth, verses 16 to 20. So after the disciples come back, they start praying. What happens next? Peter stands up in front of the 120 people, just a really little core group, and he basically, he basically calls it like it is to his people, tells them where they're at, what God's role is in the whole thing, and then calls them to the vision of what to do next. This number 120 is significant because that's what it takes in the Jewish, that's what it took in the Jewish days to, consider, to be considered its own thing with its own little council. So God had exactly the right number of people there that he needed. And so he got them all there and then Peter stands up and he says this, and I read it for you, I'm not gonna read it again, but he says this, he says, all right, people, here's the deal. God has said he's gonna do something in us and through us, it's gonna be awesome, but the reality is, is like we're down a guy. Everybody knew it, so there's no point around beating around the bush about it, right? We're down a guy. We had 12. Judas, he imploded. Physically, spiritually, he imploded. He, he went the other way. Physically, like, he imploded, as I read in the text. Like, Peter doesn't deny us any of the graphic details. And so the reality is, man, we need to shore up our leadership in the church, getting ready for what God is calling us to do. If you remember Judas, he was the disciple that we all make a big deal about because he disowned God. 
He's the one that sold out Jesus Christ. It wasn't pretty. In fact, it was pretty ugly. Sold out Jesus for a couple pieces of silver, went and bought this field a couple pieces of silver in poetic justice of God. The, the blood money that he got ended up being the place where he was going to spill his blood and take his last breath. We're not sure exactly what happened with, with uh, the, the, the disciple that went astray with Judas. It says here that he fell headlong into the field and his guts all gushed out. But if you read Matthew 27, it tells us that he hanged himself. And so there's a lot of people like, well, that really didn't happen. It happened. It's just we're not sure exactly the details. What might have happened is that Judas took his, his money, realized what he had done, and went and hung himself on a tree. But pretty incompetently, he t- tied himself to a rotten, a rotten limb and he fell to his death. Or what probably happened, could have happened, was he hung himself and everybody just was like wanted to stay away from him and he hung there until his body decomposed to the point where it split open. But that's what it says in the text. I'm just telling you like it is. But the reality is it was a grim situation for the people of God. Put yourself in, that, put yourself in their place for a second. One of your leaders completely sells out God and runs the other way and makes a mess of his life? Like, what's that going to do in your heart? I can't can't believe this happened. Like, I knew I shouldn't have trusted any leaders, right? Like, can I even trust you, God, the people you put above me? It creates this sense of, like, disequilibrium and fear and, like, where is God in this? And, Yet Peter stands up, and and I love how he doesn't beat around the bush, but instead he simply says, here's the present reality, and and in the present reality, just know this, people, that that God is still sovereign in our lives. God was sovereign in that, and he is sovereign in our lives, and, and God has a plan and a purpose in everything that we encounter. Verse 15, he's basically saying, don't get freaked out or jump off your own proverbial cliff. God told us that this was all gonna happen in his word. He brings people back to a confidence in the sovereignty of God and a confidence in the word of God. Judas was prophesied about far before, far before he ever lived. Psalm 41 verse nine is a psalm about Jesus and Judas. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who I ate bread with, has lifted his heel against me. Out of Jesus' own lips in John 17, verse 12, Jesus only ever lost one of all the people who ever came to Jesus that were one of his. He only ever lost one. And did he really even lose that one? No. He was a son of destruction that God had put in their midst that scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was simply planted among God's people for God's purposes. So he's reminding people, don't lose confidence in the leadership you have. Yeah, it, was a, it wasn't a hiccup, it was a catastrophe. Catastrophes happen in leadership, don't they? Yes. Some of you have been a part of leadership catastrophes. Strong leaders will bring you back to the reality that God is sovereign even in that. And God has purposes even in some of those things that are so hurtful that we look at, like, how could this ever be turned to good? God's purposes in these things are that he, then, then he would allow us to come to a place where we have our soul, attention, and affection and devoted on Christ and Christ alone. So instead of mistrusting leaders because of bad experiences, we ought to get our eyes back on God 
and trust that God allowed that to happen for a reason and then to move forward in a confidence in the word of God and the sovereignty of who he is. Because in this text, when you get down to verse 20, we see more prophecies about Judas and, and, and Jesus. It is written, this book may his camp become desolate and there be no one to dwell in it. Peter's just showing them, hey, scripture's actually being fulfilled right before our eyes. It's actually not a bad thing. It's a pretty cool thing. And, and look at even the next verse that says here in verse 20, let another take his office. That, that comes from Psalm 109, verse 8, in which is talking about one who's gonna be, one who's gonna have a short-lived reign and then another's gonna step up and take his place. Might have been messy. Might have caused a lot of questions, but guess what? God was all over the leadership in the early church. Here's what I love about Peter. I just love his brutal honesty. Don't you? This is what, our, this is what the church of Jesus Christ needs today in, around the globe, but especially in North America. Just, just leaders who are willing to step up and be honest with what's going on. Most today, here's how I assume most today would try and package this whole Judas thing. They try and make it nice and, and powder it over with some things and put a little bit of sugar around it and just make it seem like, oh, we're still strong, we're still awesome. It's just a little, you know what I mean? And Peter doesn't do that. No positive spins, but he says it in a way that draws the people to highlight God's masterful ways, even in the difficult. This is a, this is a mark of a God-empowered leader, one who just stand before the people and say it like it is. This is all we're trying to be with you. We're not trying to be anything special. We're not trying to tickle your ears or make this a comfy, cozy Christianity for you because it's not if you read the Bible. And some days you're gonna come in here and you're gonna hear things that quite honestly is gonna make you feel uncomfortable. It's gonna make you feel awkward and yet the things that you need to hear by the word of God so that you can move forward fully in the power of God by the grace of God. There's gonna be times where things come from this, this pulpit that you're gonna, it's gonna mess with you a little bit, but yet, but yet the heart of it is to draw you to a place where you can see God's activity in every circumstance. What we need today in a church is men who lead in truth and courage. This is what, the, this is what, what a God-empowered church is all about. Why do we have so many churches that nothing is happening of God in those churches? It's because that men aren't willing to stand and preach the truth with conviction, with grace and love. We're simply in need of church leaders who are quick to emphasize the greatness of the authority of God and the trustworthiness of his word to point you to God's plan and God's purposes. You're like, yeah, that sounds simple. That sounds easy. Can I assure you one thing? It's not. It's just not. As I read this, you know what, I realize uh, I read this and I'm like, man, I want to be like Peter. I want our elders and our pastors to be like Peter. And yet I realize that this is a, this is a hard thing to do in today's day and age is to stand and pre- preach truth. We need your prayer in this. We need, we need your, your support in this. Reality is there's distractions galore in the culture around us. And, and what do people want to hear? Everything but the truth, it seems today. We're just like you, we, we get to the place where we fear people and we chicken out. 
We know that people want their ears tickled and not the superficial affirmations and not the actual word of God. I don't see Peter thinking of any of those things here. This, this is what it means to be a leader in God's church today and it's getting harder and harder as the days go on. But I want you to know that the only reason we're willing to stand and say the things that we say and preach the word of God exactly as it is is because we know from scripture that the unstoppable church, the, the God-empowered leadership of the unstoppable church always stands with unwavering confidence in God and roots itself in God's sovereign care and his perfect word. And so like I said, this is a message more for our leaders than for you, but I'm letting you in on what our leaders are aiming for so that you can pray for us and be with us on these things. This is a message to myself and Tim and Ed and Brian and to David and to, and to Brett. God, help us be an unstoppable church where we see your power shine through. Last few verses in this go on to point out our third mark of a God-empowered leadership. It's simply this. They're faithful in following God's lead. A God-empowered church is faithful in following God's lead. So Peter says, all right, guys, here we are. We're down a leader. We got to figure this out and figure this out soon. And so what he does is he says, let's go find the guys that qualify for an apostleship. If you see in this text that there's, there's qualities in a, of what it takes to be an apostle. There's a high bar for leadership in the early church. The same high bar we have now, just a little bit different. And so they go, they find two guys. They find Joseph, who had three names. I guess he was pretty cool and popular. And like, hey, Joseph, or Barsabas, or I don't, know, I, guess, I don't know, and Matthias. And so what they do is they prayed over them. They're like, hey, these two guys meet the qualifications of an apostleship. What's the qualifications? That they had been with Jesus during his earthly reign, those three years after you know, John the Baptist came, it says here, that he was there with Jesus. And then they, they, they witnessed his resurrection, in some way, maybe not physically, but they witnessed the resurrected Jesus. So they said, who in our midst fills these? And so they had two guys, Joseph and Matthias. So like every good, wise Christian leadership does, they put their names on a little rock. J, M, put it in a bowl, shook the bowl all about. The first one that popped out, that's the guy that the Lord has. Voila, new leader, new apostle. And uh, honestly, what they were doing is they were trusting in God's sovereign care again. They, they made the, the best decision they could. There's really no bad decision in this. They made the best decision they could. They said, okay, God, we don't know. There's two guys. It's up to you. Trusting that the rock that popped out first was going to be under God's providential care. Interesting, isn't it? But this is how they made decisions uh, before, before the Holy Spirit came. They allowed Jesus to choose the last one by, his, by casting lots. Two things I want to note here before we move on. Number one is this, this is not a blueprint for how we make decisions today. We don't come to our decisions as elders and be like, hey, well, it says in Acts 1 that they cast lots, so we're going to have one service or two services or three services. One, two, three, put them in a little bowl. Three services, look at that. Oh, how many elders are we going to have in our church? Well, let's put numbers from one to ten, which everyone pops out, that's the number of elders. We don't do it that way. Let's put all the programs we think we should do on a little rock. We don't do it that way. Why? This is the last time we see casting of lots in the whole Bible. The difference being the next chapter is the Holy Spirit comes. And so once the Holy Spirit comes, we don't need to cast lots and put names on rocks and all that stuff. The Holy Spirit works within us. So as the leaders pray, they come to a unity on it and a cohesion on it. We know what God has for us. And so just so you know, this is not a blueprint for how we make decisions, nor should it be. You don't want us making decisions like that, I don't think. 
Secondly, this has often mis- mis- been misunderstood as, as a design for how many elders ought to lead a local church. Well, there's 120 people, there was 12 elders, 12 leaders, that means it should be 10% should be leaders, and that's not what it's saying at all. Not at all. Why, why was God so urgent in, in replacing the 11th with the 12th? Because as God started the, the, the church age, he wanted his people to know from Old Testament on that this was still part of his sovereign saving plan from the very beginning. Matthew 19, 28 says that in the end times, 12 apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes. God wanted to show us that this is all part of my saving plan. The same salvation plan in the Old Testament, 12 tribes, is the same salvation plan I have in the New Testament with 12 apostles. Just to make sure there's cohesion between the old and the new, there's no, no confusion. It's like this is God ordained. Again, after this, we don't see the, the, the disciples replacing guys as they get martyred is what happened to them. Acts chapter 12, James was martyred. No one replaced him. Why? Because the bigger deal was that God wanted to show that this, at the start of the church age the cohesion of his overall plan of salvation. Just to make sure you don't get off on those two things. But I do want to hit what this does show us even in this verses 21 to the end of verse 26, it shows us the leadership priority of God and his high bar for leadership in the early church. It's not a superficial thing. It's not a like, hey, let's, let's win the most popularity votes in the church. Let's go drum up all kinds of support so people vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. That's not the way church leadership works at all in God's economy. It's not about the who's who in the church world. It's about gifted, qualified men that God is choosing to lead his people. And Matthias was one of those guys. He was probably one of the 70 commissioned in Luke 10 to go into all the world. He was was probably, it says in church history, went on to become a missionary in Ethiopia. His name actually means gift of God. Godly leadership is a gift of God. And it's got nothing to do with the worldly definition of how we even see church leadership today. It's not about charisma. It's about character. Qualifications here. They had to have been with Jesus and witnessed his resurrection. What's the qualifications of a leader today? Obviously not physically been with Jesus and seen his resurrection, but it's the same. Men who have clearly encountered the living God. Men who have evidence of a life of Jesus flowing in them and through them. They've seen the resurrection. They're living a resurrected life in Jesus Christ. That's the qualifications for church leadership. It's got nothing to do with the media you see online about, well, this church leader's the best and he's got the most dynamic presentations and he's cool and he's buff and he's hip. It's got nothing to do with that at all. It's got to do with men who are called out by God, living out the reality of what God has called his followers to be. The Bible shows us many places what the qualifications for an elder or a pastor are today. 1 Timothy 3, you can read these this afternoon or this week. Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter 5. All about men who have clear evidence of the 
life of Jesus in them. Here's, here it is in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, just verses 5 to 9. This is what it is. They're called to appoint elders in every town. Men who are above reproach, the husband of one wife. Children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, that's what an elder is, that's what a leader is, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and get this, also to rebuke, yes, it is part of the role of a leader to rebuke those who contradict it. God's not all about calling the qualified, as Henry Blackaby says, he's about qualifying the call. Men with a clear and obvious heart for the Lord, that's who's designed to lead the church. Look at the prayer in verse 24. Look at the prayer in verse 24. This is, this is what we pray too as we discern who's gonna lead our church in the coming days. We're praying, God, show us. Do we need to add another elder? God, show us show us who that is. It says here in verse 24, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. We're still praying that prayer today. Why? Because the Bible tells us to. How do we choose people in our church? We don't do the vote thing. We're parade your stuff so that people will vote you in. We, we pray as elders. We pray hard. God, show us who ought to lead our church. We look at the qualified men in our church, many qualified men in our church, men who are living out the gospel, men whose evidence that, yeah, not perfectly, none of, these, none of us are perfect in these things by any stretch, but men, is, they, resemble, they resemble the reality of what a leader is because the Holy Spirit is working in them. So as we pray and as we seek God's face, then God shows us. That's how we have our elders so far. God shows us. Hey, here's a couple guys that just stand out. They're like the cream of the crop in God's eyes in the church by God's qualifications. And so we go to them and say, hey, God, you're, you're, God's leading us to have another elder. And so we tap them on the shoulder. Will you consider being an elder with us? If after prayer and talking with their wife, they say yes, we'd bring them into the elders room for six months just to test character and see how they handle confident, confidentiality and see if the gifting is a real fit for eldership. And after the six months, if that's still good, we'd bring them to you and say, hey, here's where God is leading us. Here's what we believe God is calling us as a church to anoint as our next elder or pastor. Will you affirm that? And after you affirm that, then we move forward, if there's any, no reason why they shouldn't be, then we move forward with putting uh, elders into our church. And this is the godly way that he calls us to do it. We look for men who have a heart for the Lord. Men who have a heart for the things of God. Men who are, here's the heart of a leader, men who are humble. Men who aren't trying to elevate their own selves men who are low before God and elevating God above all else, men who are attuned with the Lord and submissive to the will of God, men who are earnest, men who are driven by an intense love for God, a sincere, heartfelt appreciation for the gospel and an overwhelming love and burden to see everybody grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Biblically, it's men who are authentic, real, genuine, no fake facades of a spirituality that doesn't exist, but men who are willing to be honest and show their human hearts, strengths, weaknesses, victories, defeats, the whole gamut. Men who are authentically alive with a real brokenness over sin and desire for righteousness. Men who are resolute. 
Resolute, being firm in conviction, sound in doctrine as you read at the end of Titus chapter one. Men who have courage to remain faithful regardless of the culture or popular opinion. Men who hold strong and fast to the calling of God, to his word and to worship and to prayer and to witness. And finally, men who are trustworthy. Men who are full of integrity and consistent and dependable. Someone whom you know you can follow simply because they are simply just trying to be like Jesus Christ. Notice I keep saying men, because if you read 1 Timothy 3, it's clearly an office. Pastors and elders are an office for men. And so we're constantly praying, God, show us the men in our church who are stepping up and being the men that God's called them to be. It's not minimizing the the women, equality in God's eyes for sure, equality, equality, but different roles that we play according to God's design. Just like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all equal, but they have different roles that we, they play, so we as people are equal, have different roles that we, pray, that we play, and so we're always praying, God, show us, show us who is gonna help us lead this church as we grow. And we're even praying that now. This is good timing for this sermon. We're praying that now. God, show us who ought to help us lead our church in the ways of God. It's serious. It's a big deal. As John Maxwell says, everything rises and falls on leadership. Obviously, it's the Lord who takes center stage, but the reality remains. If leaders are running towards God, the people generally are too. If they're running away from God and drifting away from God, so are the people. The leadership of the church sets the spiritual, the spiritual thermostat of the church, the thermometer of the church, that the leaders are on fire and pushing people in that way, so the church goes. If they're cold and dead, so the church goes. So we are praying, we are praying that God would help us see the leaders in our church. Not that we're gonna roll some dice, but we're gonna pray hard that God would confirm that in us. And men, this is for you men, men, this is a noble thing you ought to want God to do in you and through you. It says that in 1 Timothy, it's a noble thing to desire to lead God's people. Most men I come across, you talk church leadership, they're like, oh no, that's for you, not me. Really? It says in the word that this is a noble thing, this is the best use of your life to step up and lead God's people in the ways of God. I got better things to do, I just don't want, to, don't want the responsibility. Well, we're missing it because even if you look at this list, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, guess what? It's what God's already calling you to. It's not like a special list for the leaders. This is what the leaders look like. This is what the rest of the church looks like. This is what everybody's supposed to be aiming for. Men, men, I'm calling out men. Men, this is what everybody's supposed to be aiming for. Well, that's for the leaders. I'm just gonna sit over here in my little comfy little... No. Actually, God's calling you already, men, to lead in your homes and to lead in your workplaces, to lead in your places of worship. And it's an honor and privilege then to be called out of that to even lead in the church. This is what we aspire to be and to do because God has designed the church to be and to do that. This is a type of leadership that we long to be. Men persistent in prayer, men who are willing to say the truth as is and lead people to a sovereignty of God and the truth of his word. Men who are, men who are following the leading of God. And it's not an easy task. When I was in seminary, I thought this was gonna be the greatest job ever, and quite honestly, I thought it was being called the summer camp, when actually it's the battlefield, you're enlisting in the war. And so it's not just a call to our leaders to lead, 
It's a call to our church to understand what the leader is and to surround our leaders and support our leaders because we need your support. Leadership's not an island in and of itself where you just do your thing and hope that people fall along. This is a, this is a together thing. We've just happened to be called and appointed as leading over you, not, not arrogantly, but humbly. But we, this, this is also a call for you to recognize what it is of the types of leaders God's calling to lead you as the church. So I don't want you to think this is just for the elders. That's yeah, good exhortation for the elders. It's a good encouragement for you to, to, to understand the role of the elders and pastors and to rally around them. I'm just going to finish off just so you can have some application to take home for your own life and not just our leaders today. Just four things that I mentioned last week as we laid hands on David and Brett to be pastors of our church. Here's how you can stand with us in this calling. It's a high calling. It's a huge calling. It's a great responsibility calling. There's a burden to the calling. Here's how you can come along and help with us, stand with us. One is through this, through urgent prayer. We don't just, need, we don't just want you to pray for us. We need you to pray for us. Ephesians 6.18 says, pray for all the saints with all types of prayers. This includes your leaders. You can pray for us on a daily basis. We are weak men, just like you are. We're prone to all the same things you are. You can pray for us that we'd have courage and faith and wisdom and love and protection and blessing. You can pray for us, and I would encourage you to pray for us as we pray for you. Second thing is this, true patience. Colossians 3.13 says that we bear with one another. And forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us, so we must also forgive each other. This also applies to the men that lead you. Sometimes it seems that it applies to everybody else, but not the leaders. This applies to the leaders. Uh, you, please don't hold us up to an expectation that's humanly impossible for us to, to uphold. Instead, please be ready to extend the same grace to us as we would to you. Please, please do. We're going to fail you, unfortunately, even this year. Why? Because we're human. We're not trying to fail anybody, but we just, we, we need the Lord. As we forgive you and you forgive us, that's where the power of the body of Christ comes alive. Third thing is this, eager participation. Ephesians 4.12, join with us in the work of the ministry. Our role is to equip you for the work of the ministry. We know what the greatest joy for a pastor or elder is, is to see the people coming alongside and rolling up their sleeves and sweating and laboring and toiling along with us for the gospel. Yeah, those encouragement notes, they're good. We appreciate them, but nothing more than a life lived along your side, aiming to, aiming to get the gospel forward for the glory of God. Last one is this, is joyful pleasure. Be a joyful pleasure. Hebrews 13, 17 says that your lives ought not to be a burden, but a joy for your leaders to lead. Let's just be honest. It doesn't take a spiritual giant to criticize and complain and be cantankerous towards leadership. It just doesn't. But it takes a spiritual giant to recognize that God has ordained leadership for your good and his glory. Leadership is such an important part of the movement of God. Think about this, 12 men, 120 people. They're the reason why we sit here today worshiping the God of the universe. 12 people, 12 men, 120 people. You think of a little church, like what could ever good come out of that? Well, when you do it God's way in God's plan, great things happen for the glory of God. We're praying that it happens here in the same way it happened in the early church for the glory of God, that we would be Leaders in a church that's praying and committed to speaking the truth and committed to following faith wherever God leads us. Asking God diligently, God, would you 
grow us? Would you grow in us and through us fruitfulness for the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a passage of scripture that most guys would skip over because really what's that got to do with me? It's got everything to do with you. It's got everything to do with me. A leadership God empowers is a church that God empowers for the gospel. Let's pray that we would be exactly this for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how powerful and effective it is and how, God, you didn't even waste one sentence or one word in your scriptures. You gave us everything we need for a life of godliness and a life of powerful impact for the gospel in our, in our world around us. God, I simply pray that you'd help us as leaders be the leaders you call us to be. God, you know how, how sinful we are and you know how flawed we are. You know how frail we are. God, I pray that you strengthen us for the work of the ministry. God, I pray that you'd raise up more leaders, that the men in our church would take this call to leadership seriously, that many would aspire to be the godly men that they've called them to be at home and at work and in the church. God, I pray that you as a congregation allow us to rally around the leaders as we rally around Jesus Christ. And God, would you do great and mighty things here? Would you, would you accomplish more than we could ever ask or imagine? You take this little group of 650 people and would you multiply us times 10, times 100, times 1,000, times 100,000 in the world around us with seeds of the truth of Jesus Christ? God, that's our heart's desire, just to be found faithful and fruitful for you. And it only happens by your grace, so please, God, Give us your grace in Jesus' name, amen.